There she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa, she's ready to go to the stars. This is the 300th episode of the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. Its mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host... This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Rich. This is Pixie. Welcome to the Tri-Tac Games Podcast. Your podcast of going into the night and finding out that you're not alone. You're altered and changed. Blah, blah. I want to drink your ripple. <laughs> I don't drink wine. Ripple is not wine. <laughs> um, this week we are talking about vampires in Bureau 13 and uh, why haven't they taken over the place and killed off all the humans? You know, my, my line has always been it's only holy water as long as you treat it as if it's holy. Yeah. You know, you once you start up, putting it into the plastic pistol, not uh, not a proper vessel for keeping something holy and sanctified. However, there is a uh, there is a, of course a holy device for sprinkling water. You yes. know, if, if you're Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. You know, see, aspergillium. Aspergillium. Yes, it looks like a mace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which which is why a certain kind of mace was called the holy water sprinkler because it looked just like the aspergillium. Yeah. Well, I have no trouble, you know, with the idea that, you know, holy water can be, you know, in something that isn't, you know, sanctified for a short period of time. Uh, in the movie John Constantine, uh, which wasn't about vampires, it was about demons, they turned the tank of water that's used in the sprinkling system into holy water and then caused it to flush into the rest of the hospital, destroying lots and lots of, of, of demons, okay? A lovely, glorious scene, yes. And I have no problem with that because it was very short. I mean, right, basically right after he does it, he sets it off, okay. But like 10 minutes later, probably just water. Actually, that makes me think, okay, so if it depends on the vessel... How about you? You contact your happy your your father. Was his father McGregor or what's his name again? The um, yeah, Father McGregor. Father McGregor. Father McG uh, for McGarn. McGarn. Yeah, and, and see if he knows a few um, monks who can build you a a holy water super soaker. A well, sanctified. Yeah, holy no, there's water. no reason you couldn't do that. I yeah. say you have to basically, 
you know, a, I mean, anything mm -hmm. can be sancti you know, be a sanctified vessel. You just mm -hmm. have to treat it that way. So you take your holy water, you put it in the silver flask. Okay, you bless it, you put it in the silver flask. It stays holy water. Okay, mm -hmm. you take it and you put it into your, you, you know, in, into your previously used uh, Nalgene or um, you know, uh, um, what's the sparkling water? Avion, Avion, Avion bottle. No, I don't think it's holy water anymore. Okay, but I'm thinking if you if you just get like Father McGarn or one of his younger pre. Um, Josie, did you read about Father McGarn? The computer was slowing down on me, so I didn't. I I had Josie today read up on Bureau thirteen D twenty for prepping for this. And Father McGarn is pretty much like an 80-year-old Catholic priest who's pretty much the go-to Catholic priest for Bureau 13. Now he's training a bunch of youngins to take over, so he's got his cadre. Basically, I would think just have Father McGarn or one of his boys just bless a super soaker, sanctify it, you know, run a Catholic right over it, and you can use it as a bane administer. We're talking Catholic Church and being Catholic. Uh, no, nah, it has to be something they made. It has to be something they made, and it has to be made out of, out of relatively holy stuff, like silver and stuff like that. So we're talking something, when they get done with it, it's probably worth $100,000. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's made out of silver and gold, and it's all well, well piped, and it's got holy symbols all the heck over Really quick about holy water. My mother works for a small Catholic store in Taylor, Michigan called the Little Rose Chapel. And she gave me a bottle of holy water and it had a, a, like a gold cross painted on the plastic bottle. Reputedly from the fountain at Lourdes. Now, by that concept, except for the fact that the cross was on there, would that water no longer have been holy if the cross was not on there? See, that's something I just realized now. I mean, because every holy water dispenser or carrier I've seen, at least for priests, all have religious symbols on yeah. it of some sort. I just wondered about that because I got this bottle, and I mean, it was maybe a six to eight ounce bottle, it wasn't that big, but still, I'm just thinking, well, by your logic that you just said. That water just was, you know, water with some oil in it, you know. So if it was a bottle that was never used for anything else, it was treated, you know, in a reverent fashion. It was filled with water that was blessed and and supposedly had, you know, uh, holy qualities. Closed up. You never used for anything else. Treated respectfully in its transmission until you got it. You continue to treat it respectfully. I don't see a reason why I wouldn't be able to, you know, continue to have that quality. It's like you know when you say, "Oh, let's," you know, when you take you splash half of it on a kitchen fire, for example, or something, you know, <laughs> and close the rest up and put it aside. Well, I'm not too sure that's holy water anymore. Okay, yeah. because you just used it for something that wasn't its designated purpose or something that respected what it was supposed to be. Yeah. If you're using it, you would actually would have, probably want to say the words too in God's name, you know, or you know, you pump up the super soaker and you go in God's name. I hereby douse you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that would be fine. I, I just wondered about that. It just said, because it came to mind about getting that bottle, I was like, 
okay, yeah, the fall of the boards. And then I read up and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's one reason why, in most cases, these kinds of banes um, – are, are usually cobbled together on the spot, short term, because of that, because the players themselves really don't want to go through the effort of playing the, the, these items that way. It's like you get the bullets, you know, uh, the, the Creature of the Night specials, okay? They come packed in holy water and all the other stuff like that. You take them out, you put them in your gun, okay, and you use them. But then, you know, when it, the, the next day, you better reload, Okay, because they're just bullets now. Well, yeah, it's like we discussed before with the... For those of you who saw Hellboy, big baby's bullets, and they had like five different banes in these big sort of clear bullets. We pretty much agreed here on the podcast, and we did this podcast like a year and a half ago, two years ago, that because those banes were not kept separate, all five of the banes were tainted. It was like holly, mistletoe, ash, something else. Cold iron. And they were suspended in holy water. You kind of diluted the efficiency of all of them because you just threw them together. Right. Yeah. You created so, a cocktail and you better drink it fast. Yeah. Well, he was firing them off pretty quick. So, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And it works. The, he had those bullets pre-made. So, pretty much the potency of those banes, as far as I was concerned, was pretty much eh. Well, like, like the little throwaway line we did in D20 uh, about collecting banes, you know, and when you if you go to the right shop and you get the wolf's bane that's been collected at night by a virgin, it's going to work really well. When you go to the shop and the lady says, yeah, I use these pair of scissors and, and you watch your three kids run by, you're not quite sure of the, of the, of the, of the quality of the wolf's bane. Yeah, at basically, that point. <laughs> it's, it's like the spells that are cast by uh, a truly dedicated uh, mage. And the kitchen witches. Yeah, the kitchen witches, the whoopee witches, yeah. yeah you're not going to get the same effect from the various things, mm -hmm. you know? If you yeah. get any effect at all, you ought to be happy. I had to explain to somebody about the whoopee. I think it was I explained it to you some time ago, Josie, about the whoopee witches, about, oh, we need a, 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 a live chicken as a sacrifice. Well, no, I got some chicken out of the freezer. It's thawing. We'll use that. Not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stories about whoopee witches just like that. It wanted like granite. Okay, I got some talc. You know, so, yeah. no. okay. And it works, which is the funny thing is it in most cases it actually does work. But you know, that's one reason why either you get low grade results or you get really unexpected high grade results. Yeah. Oh, what's the other one? I think I think it came from Constantine too, didn't it? The that is the the knuckle duster that also has all five holy symbols on it. It's male salt silver. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, I, I'm thinking about that now. You can't make it out of salt silver because silver that kind of, that would actually dent on some of these critters. So you can make it out of cold iron, silver plated. With all those holy symbols out, it might that would definitely leave a mark on somebody, and might even hurt them. Well, if you're if you're doing the combined holy symbols, you know what scene's going to come up. Benny from the Mummy, where he's got like eight or nine necklaces, he's just speaking in different languages. Yeah, yeah. Then you find out. So, so Joe, you're an atheist, and you work for the bureau. Yeah, you're an atheist, and you work for the bureau. Yeah. 
Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a, um, a a player in my D and D campaign who absolutely refused to consider the gods of the campaign to be gods. And I was like, okay, what are you trying to say here? Okay, I mean, it's not like they don't show up every now and again. They're there. I mean, everyone knows they exist. They've seen them. You see the effects, you know. Yeah, but they're not gods. Basically, I think he was finally trying to get across the idea that he just saw them as being really, really powerful beings, but they're not really gods, you know, like somebody, something that's that has an inherent right to rule over us. Yeah. I think, you know, or has a moral, you know, uh, provides a moral compass or something like that. And I'm like, okay, but he's, but he was, he drove me crazy because we were, you know, he, he was constantly screwing up interactions with the, the religious folk because you know, mm-hmm. they come in and they say, all hail so and so. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just making just, him so mad. You know? Yeah, like, just don't stand. Just don't have him stand on the hill in brass armor, telling them they're a whole bunch of you know, you know what's yeah, uh, during a thunderstorm. Guy, you know, he'd be the guy who urinates <laughs> the alders and things like oh, that. Yeah. Okay, so with vampires, my my thing is about now that we've totally tangent off uh, 150 light years with vampires and. Them surviving on Earth, why uh, Bruce mentioned at the very beginning of this about how long it would take for them to where human humanity would become at a tipping point where it'd be just like, okay, they're using up more than they than they have. They're they're gonna drain, they're gonna run out of a food source. I would think that most vampires that are not of a totally animalistic nature, i.e. that they're not they've just not gone feral, would plan ahead. They if if the vampires would be trying to prolong their food supply, it would be like uh conservation oh. stewardship. One of the studies that Bruce mentioned it, it took that into account that they were farming humans. They have human thralls and servants that they feed off of, rather than the general population around them. Well, yeah, that that again, that's the vampire who has held on to enough of his humanity to realize if I just go wholesale slaughtering, I'm going to run. I'm going to die. Run out of food. They have some manner of self-preservation about them. Yeah. And it, it's conservation stewardship. That also, however, brings me back to the point of, it's like how proper conservationists like Steve Irwin, they try to prolong the environment because they realize that if, the, if the, the, that fast of the ecosystem dies out, there's going to be trouble. It brings up the point that vampires see humans as food stock animals, like we would see a cow or a chicken or whatever. And the vampire, as I said, unless he's gone totally feral, just snarling, chaotic evil, raving mad, no sense of humanity whatsoever, they're going to make sure that they prolong what they have. And like Josie said, it's going to be... They're only going to feed from a select few. And, of course, again, this brought up my thing earlier about 
vampires that one of the major tropes I've seen, yeah, they can just feed off a human repeatedly or they can in, be intent on making them right a, a vampire under their thrall. With those ones, it is the intent. They could feed off the same person like every few days. Yeah, just to, you know, keep going, take a pint from let them every them, few days, let, let them build them up, right? And take, but unless they have the intent of turning them, it won't happen. Yeah, it's like they're looking at them and going, uh, no, I want to make you my B-word. Fine, then they will go through the three days, bite one, bite two, bite three is the killing bite. On that fourth night, they rise and they're a vampire now, but a secondary vampire to them. It just I, I would just see it as good conservationists that vampires would not try to eradicate humanity just for that short-term thrill. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but I think it also depends on the vampire type. Are they the contagious vampire? That is the one that basically whoever he kills comes up as a vampire. Yeah, we're doomed with that one. You know, we maybe hip dip. It, no, it doesn't. Unless the vampires go and purposely kill off the ones they spawn themselves, you know, uh, we're doomed. Because if you keep making more vampires, everyone you kill becomes a vampire. Then eventually, you got more mouths to feed than you got next to bite. The whole movie Innocent Blood was based on that idea. After the main character would bite somebody, she said, you know, the first thing I was taught was always finish the food. And so it'd show her taking out a shotgun and blowing, blowing away the head of the, of the person that she just... Because it only hid the bite marks, but it also made sure that they wouldn't ro- turn into a vampire. Later on, because of something that happens, she isn't able to finish somebody, and they end up becoming a vampire and that person turns around and bites somebody else, then all of a sudden you've got vampires coming out of the woodworks. Well, I guess this would be kind of like a meta plot for a Bureau 13 campaign. And it would, it would needless to say, this would be a, a campaign idea heavy on the concept of vampires, which means you GMs would really have to study up on all your various vampire tropes. And it'd be kind of a variation on the warring clans, almost like a World of Darkness thing. But you would have Ooh. certain vampires. Certain vampire types don't like each other. Well, be, well, no, it, that that it'd be the competition thing. But right. you have certain vampire types that are looking to just we want that short term throw. We don't care that humanity is going to be gone. And then you've got, excuse me, other vampires that are going. No, if you kill off kill off humanity, we all die. And a vampire comes in and calls in the Bureau. Take these vampires out because they are going to kill you all. They give zero Fs. Or worse, we will live with an unendurable thirst for the rest of eternity. Yep, until the sun comes along and burns the earth away. Yeah, they're screwed. That, That just came to mind about how some vampires, yeah, we want to, even if we're behind the scenes, farm humanity and only take what we need to survive. And then you got those vampires, usually the more feral ones, that are just like, we're going to rip the throat out, drink the blood, and that's it. We're done. Okay, bring up the next poor sucker. Yeah, and that was the Anne Ricean vampires, by the way. Yeah. I mean, unless you physically tore the vampire away from its victim, they would drain them down until they were dead. Yeah. I'm also thinking of, you know, you got vampires 
who basically came from a different culture and a vampire who drained the entire frat house. And all the frat boys now become vampires. Yeah, there's no control there. This guy is an evil SOB. I mean, even if you know who he is, okay, you know that this guy, you've been trying to stop him, you know he's powerful, and then he comes to you saying, no, there's a breed of vampire out there that if you do not stop them, humanity will be gone in this amount of time. So you're basically kind of, not, not burning the candle both ends, what the term... You're co-belligerents. Yeah, basically, it's like he's telling you, okay, yeah, I could take them out, but do you really want... You guys are better at doing it more clandestine than I am. And he might even give you a boon. Maybe his vampires will no longer mess with the Bureau or interfere with them, or maybe he may give you something to help take them out. It's just the Bureau's a little better at doing it. Or maybe he will make himself available if you ever have an unstoppable force that needs a strike force that he would represent. Okay, yeah, some type of boon, but yeah, I I think that would be a great campaign idea of just, you're having to take out a vampire strain, for lack of a better term, and I think species would be the wrong term, because all the vampires are very, a strain would be the best, probably, term. Yeah. But... Take out this strain, or it will wipe out humanity, no questions asked. What level of the Bureau does he contact? Does he contact a team, or does he actually uh, show up in Bangor, Maine, saying hi? Yeah, that. Yeah, because that would be a real smart idea, John, to show up in Bangor, Maine. No. With all the supernatural defenses in that place, no. he wouldn't make the front door. <laughs> if he was genre-savvy, okay, if he mm-hmm. understood that the Bureau existed... He would create a supernatural incident that they would be forced to investigate, and then he would approach them. Yeah, and they realize you got well. we got played. We got <laughs> approach them while on assignment while they're away from the probably several block radius defenses. Well, it just well, this guy would he would yeah if he were what's the term genre excuse me genre savvy yeah he would find the way to contact them. It could be as easy as taping a note up onto the side of the RV. Yeah. And then you go there and and there's a phone and you get a phone call and you talk over the phone. Right, exactly. And But yeah, this guy would just come up and and then just drop this little bomb saying, yeah, you might want to take these out. I can give you help. It's just I can't do it. And I will make it worth your while. And it would just be too much for this bureau team to resisted because it's like one we're doing our job two we're eliminating an obvious threat to humanity three this vampire who we know is powerful will help us we have a marker which leverage is always a good thing to have no matter what it is (laughs) Now, being the paranoid player, I go, wait a second, because he knows that, A, we just us by ourselves aren't enough to take on these guys. We're going to call in other teams. So we all get conveniently into one spot. Oh, you're thinking he's trying to oh. rein you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and and you don't... you are going to get that one person. The one person that's paranoid enough to think of that. Here's the thing, Josie. If you're an experienced bureau agent... You it's because paranoid. you are paranoid. As a matter of fact, if you saw the bureau agent class, 
Yes. Like the sixth, sixth level, level of a class. You are paranoid. Yeah, you get a plus two to an issue. <laughs> because you're yeah, a, a little bit of paranoia isn't uh, uh, isn't a good idea. It's a job requirement. <laughs> Well, you know what they say, you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. And if you're a bureau agent, baby, you got red dots on you all over the place. <laughs> also, you would be remiss as a bureau as a bureau team not to report it to the bureau. Well, of course, yeah. This vampire comes knocking on your front door saying, yeah, I'm here, but there's a much worse breed of vampire out there I need you to take care of. You're also going to wonder if you're a vampire, if you're, if you're a bureau agent, what's in this for you? You're, basically, this is scum versus scum. We're wondering why are you handling us, having us handle this? Yeah, it's the two cartels in Mexico fighting over something. And of course, the one cartel contacts the police and tells them where the other cartel is. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, yeah, you're you, yeah. If you're paranoid, you're going to be sitting there going, "Wait a minute, what, what, yeah, there, what's the catch?" Yeah, and it's also quite possible. Uh, thinking of a scenario, quite possible that you're not the team he contacted. You've been contacting the bureau, so you'd be working with Team Tuna Fish, and you'd be going over here and doing this. So it may not be you may not be the first contact team. You may be the second or the helping team that's going to be helping out with another team or other said teams. So this is one of the cases where you can actually see the bureau working together for a big deal. Well, yeah, if you've got like two or three, you know, bureau, this would be a good way to bring in another bureau team as like guest. NPCs and just say, okay, we're working with the big boys. Because let's face, um, what you, did you say? Tuna fish? Yes. Yeah, Team, Team Tuna Fish from the novels. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, because John usually hawks Fremont like I do candlestick. So, but yeah, basically, you could sit there and use these NPCs and get the players to be like, ooh, okay. We're with the big boys now because Fremont is up there as one of the famous teams. Oh, we're, you know, we get yeah. to see how the professionals do this, you know, so. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, as a GM, I would actually, you know, the, 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 your team, where your team's called, you're, the, you're, you're, you're going down the Death Star Trench and you're going to be actually going into where their lair is and, t- and try to take them out all at once. Because really, if you try to piecemeal, one will get away. But if we catch them all in one spot, you know, we'll take them out. What you don't realize is that you're the bait. Well, yeah, when you go in there, oh, again, paranoid bureau agent be going, wait a minute, we're the newbies. Why are we going in there? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Team Fremont, Josie, I think you saw they are the uh, Seattle-based area. That John's creation. Uh, yep. I... They're a regional team. They basically, they stay put instead of Rome. Yeah. I've read like 130 pages. I not everything. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I had Josie look over Bureau 13 D20 last night and today while I was at work. So because he, I know Candlestick, Tuna Fish, and Robert Harrison. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, th- these vampires, the this this strain that is looking to wipe out. Humanity, they just they want the short-term thrill. They don't care about preserving their blood supply. You would have to make them a particular a particular type of nasty. Not just that they're feral, but just something about them, the urgency would be where even this vampire is scared. Ooh, if he's that scared, 
that he's calling in the bureau. That would be something where just you'd be like, okay, what what is going on that Mr. Big Bad Vampire that we've had to deal with two, three, four times now, and he keeps his distance and we're fighting his minions. If he's coming to us about them, we need to find out what's wrong that these guys scare him. Now, I have a thought. And this is something I came up with a long time ago, but, you know, I think it was actually during the D20 design phase of Fringeworthy. What if it's not just a vampire? What if it's a a great or master Miller who was bitten by a vampire and became one itself? And Pixie is cringe. <laughs> she knows about Miller. I've run... Mellor? Scary. <laughs> point, but a Meller that contracts vampirism. Yep, and this has to be the, the supernatural, magical kind, not the contagious kind. Right. It has to be, you know. So, ba- yeah. So basically, it becomes cursed. You know, it becomes one of the damn. It's also a Meller. Well, that would mean every one of its forms would now also have vampirism. So whatever form it would change into. Right. So here's the question. When it bites somebody and drains them of their life essence, do they become a vampire or do you become a vampire meller? I would think a vampire. Do you really want more of those, both of those running around, John? That's a good idea. If you want to mix those two together, that is a very good idea. Oh, dear God, I've taught you too well. (laughs) Why? Nasty. You've been trying to take him down. Suddenly there's this mysterious... Let's go with the mysterious note on the RV. Yeah. As some other things happen that way. Yeah. I'm start talking to him about this. Big Nasty sees Bigger Nasty. And he starts describing things, and you, if you got one of your bureau agents who knows a certain female British colonel, and they go, oh, we need to talk to her. Because remember, she's the go-to person on anything that has to do with the fringe pads. So, yeah, she'd be like, a vampire Melor. Call in Candlestick now. <laughs> <laughs> that would be it. I would, I would say that comes about as close to an Omega level event as you can get. But um, that would be the perfect type of threat that just wouldn't care. Right. Oh, no, no. A vampiric... Well... See, a greater and master Meller, they're the ones that still have their minds about them. Even if they contract vampirism, they still know it's the from the ones that are below, because it's master, greater, high. The ones below the high with vampirism, those are the ones that are just chaotic, snarling masses of, of death and ruin. Yeah, Meller. And the thing is, I would imagine that all his forms are now are now vampires because it's not tied to the form; it's tied to the Meller. He's now a vampire. Yeah. So all his forms, including his fringeworthy form. Oh yeah, which means he'd be able to spread it, but the vampirism would only work on worlds that that supernatural version would work on. Yeah, yeah, and it means. Uh, so it sort of kind of cures him when he leaves the the BR13 node. Yeah. He sort of gets cured 
and he might might, might might reconsider not going back there, you know, or he goes back there because this is fun. I can actually kill a lot more people and and create more 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 dis, more disasters. Yeah, well, yeah, he's going to stick around if he's if he's an infected Mellor who gains vampirism. Why would he want to leave? Why would he want to nerf himself? Suddenly, he can just yeah with this. Yeah, I would say that vampires in general are their their needs, that hunger, that thirst is probably going to work against the overall long term plans of a Meller. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's some it has some nice things. I mean, it's got gives them some extra immunities that they wouldn't otherwise have, but it complicates things. It's it's harder for them to do their masquerades because they are vampires and they're limited. When they can be outside, and and you know certain kinds of metals are going to hurt them, and the risks outweigh the benefits. Yeah, yeah, it probably would. But at the same time, is that they don't have a choice because they've been made into a vampire, and now they got to deal with it. So yeah. I actually see this as being a kind of a more fun thing to do with a player character. To say, <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, you know, sometime in the past, you got turned into a Great Meller, and now you're a vampire. Great Meller. Now, what are you going to do with your character? And they're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> that explains all those weird dreams I've been having about being a a, a Fletcher in some medieval kingdom. That's <laughs> you know, one of your personalities. Uh, yeah, it makes you. Oh wow, makes you wonder if he if he if he takes on someone's personality, can he then enter that person's house while being invited in? I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the portal possibly curing him if he went out. Well, it wasn't so much the portal, it's leaving the B-13 node. Because remember, if the Prime has magic, the the entire node does. Right, leaving the node. What if he can't? Ooh. Due to the vampirism, he's locked into that node. That's something else. What if he can't leave? Well, we did say, well, well, undead stay undead. It's just they have the the 18-hour aura about them, or what I jokingly call the Playtex effect, uh, where you, oh. you have to, he would have to get to another magic-friendly node within 18 hours, or bad things happen. You know, that's a good point there, because to become a vampire, you basically have to die. Yeah. So technically, he's sort of, kind of, he's now in this quasi state where he's not quite sure if, if he or it, you know, it, he, she, whatever, uh, if it if it leaves this node, it may only have eighteen hours to live until it can find some other place that'll support it. Yes, and, and then all of a sudden, it dies. Or it may have been there to begin with. That's true. It could have been Bureau Thirteen's old Miller. And uh, oh. it could still be the old Meller, too. Also, yeah, well, it would stand to reason there's probably an old Meller on, on B-13 yeah. Earth. Yeah. It's, it's busy going, they never believed me when I sent the reports back about this place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I see that old Meller and, and Colonel Talbot having dinner every so often. Who's that? Oh, it's just an old friend from her old job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
or having dinner with herself, which would be freakier. Oh, but anyway. God. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to go down that route. That's, I didn't know she had a twin sister. Shut up. Just go with it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, th- this whole thing about um, one vampire wanting you to take out another because they threaten the food, they threaten humanity. Mm-hmm. It has merit because, one, it would introduce the players to, I mean, and you could bring in just the total feral vampire and you could show the, I guess the word would be juxtaposition between the suave, urbane, professional vampire who conserves food and he'll only feed a little bit. He's still evil. He's still evil as all get out, He's still but evil. he would be more lawful evil because he has the code of, I only bite so often from certain people. And he runs a blood bank. Yeah, a blood, yeah. And then you have this other strain of vampire that is just, I mean, beyond amoral. Pretty much they are animalistic. And they barely care that they're, you know, just going out and causing... It would probably, let's see, probably the best example from what I know of World of Darkness would be the Gangrel Clan. They're still human-looking and everything, but they are just very animalistic and very violent, and they're they're almost like a street gang. Ooh, one thought that crossed my mind is maybe this, these feral vampires are feral because, well, at one time, they got locked away. Okay. And they got locked away a long time ago. And they more or less, whatever whatever shreds of humanity they had, they lost it. Psychotic, oh, yeah. A psychotic break. Yeah, well, when you, when you, when you have are denied so food as a vampire, after a while, you just become irretrievably that. insane. Yeah, they just irretrievably feral. It, it's just not, not just the cheese has fallen off the cracker, the cracker's gone. So, yeah, they would, it, that insanity could be due to for starving and therefore they are just going to eat their fill and they don't care and that's when this other vampire comes up and says you need to take care of them now no you now here is the information you need get your banes together this is what will hurt them sick them all right let's continue to go back to the, the idea that we were talking about which is you know vampires and humans not being able to coexist on the long-term basis okay so mm-hmm. you know we, we you just basically have to you know uh, understand that um, so why why can't they okay you know so the one idea is is that if they feed too much then unless they're destroyed they're going to eradicate humanity okay yeah Second reason is that um, vampires usually represent the antithesis of some aspect of somebody's faith. Yeah. Yep. And so, therefore, it's basically open season. I mean, there's, you know, the holy warriors are going to start coming out of the woodwork because, you know, there's going to be 20 virgins in heaven or, you know, this God, you know, this has to be done. And, you know, whether or not the vampire is good, bad, or whatever in his behavior, 
in its concept, its description, how it became a vampire, basically paints it as something that the, uh, the higher forces, you know, say must be eradicated from the face of the earth. So it comes down to a war. You know, the vampires and humans are going to be at war with each other. So basically, with most most iterations of vampires, they embrace, except for these ones that give, you know, you catch it from a virus or whatever. It is supernatural undead evil. That right there is an antithesis to most religions who promote life, good, health. Yeah. And then you've got this this force that just corrupts humanity into this animalistic form right. with a very thin veneer of humanity covering it. Yeah, they're going to want to take it out. Yeah, most religions deal with some form of an afterlife. Something okay, this person's been put to risk, they're in better place. But now these poor bastards are denied it, yeah. These poor bastards, there will be people that say we need to destroy them, put these tortured souls to rest. Yeah. And then there will be other people that go these things are an abomination, they're unnatural. Kill it with fire, yeah. Yes. Yes. Preferably automatic. Yeah. Lots of fire. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and if they are supernatural and they are one of the damned, the last thing you want to do is, well, go to their just reward. I'm assuming you were saying go to hell. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, go to hell. Yeah. Well, because at that point, once you're corrupted like that with vampirism, you pretty much are a lost soul. There's no, you're not getting into heaven. You're done. It's not going to happen. Just get ready. You wipe the slate clean. You're done take the elevator down, you know? <laughs> but it's quite possible that the vampire themselves totally do not have that point of view. Well, as I said, most vampires, the ones that don't go in willingly, they have been turned against their will. Those are the ones who often do their best to rail against their fate and try to have a stronger veneer of humanity, as in they won't feed off innocence and they will try to be as decent a per- You will have the vampire anti-hero. Like the vampire that would take out drug dealers and other criminals. They'll feed off of the scum of the earth. Because right. Because somebody has to take care of them. Right. They might have a better chance of gaining some type of decent afterlife reward. But in the eyes of most holy warriors, as you call it, Bruce. They're scum is scum. They don't care. It's like, we don't care that... Most religious people, they're the souls of the damned. Right. And it's like, we don't care that you're taking out drug dealers and murderers and rapists and pimps right. and all that. No, you're still undead. You need to die now. So, right. yeah. And the interesting thing about this is, is that, you know, I mean, most of these particular stories come out of a predominantly uh, Christian uh, uh, population, okay, in background. And one of those, one of the, the prima facie, you know, uh, points of view in Christianity is that everybody is going to hell and they have to be saved. So here we have a race of creatures that are damned to hell, but they're surrounded by people who are damned to hell also. Okay, but they're the ones who saying we're better than you. Yeah. 
And the vampire's like, well, well what, how may, what makes you think that Jesus didn't die for my sins too? <laughs> they never seem to have this discussion in any of the stories I've ever read, you know, where they say, well, you know, you're already on the, on the road to hell. I'm a vampire. I'm damned. If there's salvation for you, why isn't there salvation for me? Well, because the vampire on the highway to hell is in the fast lane. Well, <laughs> even so, you know, I mean, everybody's, some of you will say, everyone's on, on the road in different places, but you're still on the road. But I just think it's interesting that the, the, the uh, it's so, it's so easy for someone to say, well, you know, we are, are you know, you, you are damned to hell and we're going to destroy you. Like, but, but, but totally ignoring, you know, the huge log in the eye of the, of the, of the person who's doing the slaying. Right. Yeah. That's why I like the idea of um, of providing a path of redemption for vampire characters because you know it every because most of them are are probably going to fail okay because that's it's kind of fun to do that uh, you know to struggle against your nature and fall back and go forward you know well like angel yeah and maybe you'll ultimately make it maybe you won't but you know it's uh but. And it's also a real quick way of getting rid of your character when you want to move on to something else. You're like, okay, I'm tired of this character. I go feral. Everyone has to, and so the rest of the team has to mow them down, down and then off. move forward. Yeah. And the next supernatural creature they run into, of course, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to trust you. <laughs> so, let me tell you what happened to the last supernatural creature we trusted. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, used to have two arms. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically it took it took a great sin to make you a vampire. It takes a it takes a great blessing to make you to make you not one, or at least lay you to rest. That ultimately, I think, is the goal, though, is to lay is to get laid to rest. Yeah, you've been denied death by being brought back in this form. Yeah, taking you out this? and properly killing you. Yeah. That was one of the main themes of True Blood. Yeah. See, and, and as you, yeah, and as you mentioned, Travis, yeah, Travis, that's sorry, uh, that was uh, uh, that's one of the things that that really should make the vampire something that's truly loathed because if you actually do believe you know the the christian tropes that that everyone's going you know uh you know or even not just the general religious tropes that you die and you're judged by god and and then you either go to heaven or you go to hell okay the vampire is getting the pass because they never die okay and that's just wrong that's unfair i mean we, there's an injustice here that needs to be righted and we need to put these vampires down so that they have to suffer the same judgment that we do. Yeah. So yeah. there's that point of view where it's just kind of like, I'm not really, you know, good, bad. It doesn't mean anything to me, but you need to, you know, come up to the, we need a level playing field here. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and they may do it out of a sense of justice rather than out of a sense of moral right and wrong. Okay, here we got a race of people that are beautiful and young forever, chasing all the women or guys, and we get old and we turn and we become decrepit, right, Richard? Dude, wow! Fight me, bro. What's that, Sonny? I'm I'm turning the big six zero in about three months. By the way, guys. Oh, so. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Richard's only a few years older than I am, so I'm just teasing. Bruce, the little violin plays for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's violin. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at these things that these guys, I mean, the Nosferatu vampires, okay, they're horrible, monstrous looking critters, okay? I mean, the girl that actually, you know, submitted to him in the story did it to save her entire village. I mean, it, she was doing the noble sacrifice, okay? Most of these vampires, it's like, oh, you look pretty, here, you know. Boom, boom, boom. Use the mind powers. Come on back to my room. We'll probably have sex first. And then we'll, we'll you know, I'll, I'll suck your blood. I mean, just, it's, they're like the worst. The person that always seems to get all the, the hot chicks, the hot guys. I mean, it's just totally unfair, you know, that this, that, that they're, they're alive and they get all these advantages and all this stuff. I mean, putting down these vampires because they have a better sex life than you? Wow, that's yeah. a Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, people go to war because, you know, they're trying to impress girlfriends. As <laughs> sad as it is, that is actually a good reason for some people. I don't like this person. Wow, no, no bitterness there. <laughs> I don't like this person because... They get more action than I do. I'm taking them out. Why do you have a stake and a cross? Yeah. Because But it is true. The well, it is true about not not so much the facetious way that we're talking about being undead, being a vampire. You have all these advantages. Yeah, there's some disadvantages to counter. You know, garlic, sunlight, holy reliquary. But you're stronger, you're faster, you don't suffer injury, you can change your form, you can control humanity, um, you don't age. Well, yeah, you'd be like, no, 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 no. See, you're, no, this is not right, this is not fair. You get all these perks and the rest of our humanity, you sit there and feed off us, and we grow old and die. We wither and die, basically. Yeah, that would be a, a good reason to take them out, just because morally it's just like, you guys get all these perks, and in order, to, in order to maintain that perk, you have to kill humans every so often, or at least take away their vital life fluid. It's just like, no, you need to, you need to go. So yeah, that could be a moral, ethical reason to take out vampires, not just out of the religious aspect, but just, yeah, this is not... You have this hack that denies you the great equalizer, which is death. Everyone dies, except apparently for these SOBs. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game. Hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction. No derivatives. And sucker. You best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts. Because we're some bad mothers.
Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.